This has nothing to do with archery, just so you know. This is not a program for better aim. Uh, this is about, we're talking this morning about Jesus' intentions. Really about what, what he really came to do. And um, this has been kind of a dispute among scholars for a long time. Um, especially liberal scholars who, when I say liberal, I don't mean they vote Democrat. I mean liberalism in Christian scholarship in the 19th century uh, informed by the Enlightenment and rationalism, came to reject that there was such thing as supernatural revelation. And so, mostly in uh, 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 the German academy, German theologians in the 19th century, in the mid-1800s, going on into the early 1900s, there were scholars, brilliant scholars, who said, let's see if we can get at the Jesus of history. Let's put aside the ideas of all of the miraculous and supernatural claims. Uh, let's parse all of that out of the Bible because we, we know that stuff's not true anyway from their point of view. Let's see if we can get at the Jesus of history. And one theologian after another wrote books and treatises and dissertations that, well, Jesus was a revolutionary. Uh, he was proclaiming uh, a, new, uh, a new political reality against Rome's oppression. No, no, no. Jesus was a social reformer, another theologian said. He was trying to get people simply to, uh, um, to kind of take up for the poor and the needy. And another one says, no, no, no. Jesus was this and Jesus was that. And by the time you get to the late 1800s, you have these five or six different visions of the historical Jesus, which is, they're all asking, who was Jesus really? And finally, uh, one theologian, Albert Schweitzer, said, what every one of these theologians is doing is kind of looking down in a well and seeing a reflection of their own face in the water and, and reflecting their idea of what they believe is kind of the highest ethical you know, ideal in Jesus. And there's all these different versions of Jesus what we want to do this morning is we want to say, well, what does the Bible say? For us, the Bible is the authority. So history is good. History is not a bad thing. Histor- historical inquiry is perfectly fine, and we do that. But we believe the Bible is the authority for how we understand God, our life, the way of salvation, and how we understand ourselves. And so we look to Scripture to tell us who Jesus was And not only that, we look to Scripture to tell us what Jesus was really about. Is there a place where Jesus says this a programmatic statement, here's why I came, here's what my ministry is all about? Well, I believe this passage this morning gets at that. Luke 4, beginning in verse 14, says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, remember he had been baptized and anointed with the Holy Spirit at the Jordan River when John the baptizer baptized him. Um, He returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, which is his home turf. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So Jesus' ministry is gaining momentum. And he came to Nazareth, his hometown, 
where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus was a faithful churchgoer. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Kind of like a mic drop moment here. And he end, and, and the eyes of all of the of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, "Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." Father, now we come before you, praying for your illumination here from this passage of scripture. We pray, O oh God, that you would help us to see Jesus clearer than we have before. Help us to understand why Jesus came, what he was all about. And Lord, even for us who have a pretty good grasp of Jesus and the gospel, give us a greater insight and greater understanding that we may worship you more and serve you better and love you with all of our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're talking about the aims of Jesus And uh, as we mentioned a minute ago, Jesus has left the Jordan River, and after his baptism last week, remember we talked about how Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, right? He's baptized and empowered by the Spirit. God speaks out, this is my beloved Son, and he immediately is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan after he's fasted for 40 days. Jesus has endured that temptation. He stood up against that test. Remember, we talked about that. And now, of all places, he doesn't go to the capital, right? He doesn't go to like the equivalent of Washington, D.C. today, which was Jerusalem in those days. He goes back to his neighborhood. He goes back to Galilee. He goes back to Nazareth. And um, I'm not exactly sure why he did that, but essentially, uh, you, we, we could say that Jesus is going to his own, right? So people know Jesus, they've known Jesus all of the years, and he goes back to the people he knows, he goes to his local congregation, and he shows up, and uh, he's a faithful churchgoer, says, as was his custom, and he reads from the scroll of the law. And, excuse me, he reads uh, the prophet Isaiah. And the first thing that he quotes from Isaiah, and this is from chapter 68, is the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. And he appropriates this passage prophesying about the Messiah, and he's, he's talking about himself. Now, if you're sitting next to, standing next to Jesus, you're blown away. This guy who you know and who's been gone for a while and has just come back into town is essentially saying that this prophecy of the anointed one, the Messiah, that he's, he's it. 
And he's, he's appropriating that passage for himself. And he says that the Spirit has anointed me to do five things. Five things. And the first thing he says is to give good news to the poor. Well, what's this good news, you ask, right? Well, some of you immediately say, oh, the good news, that's the gospel. You'd be right to think that. But what does this mean for his hearers, right? When we hear good news, we say, oh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, people in the first century were not thinking, oh, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were thinking good news. Well, good news meant different things to different people. And he says, the Spirit has anointed me to give good news to the poor, The good news that Jesus is talking about for first century Jews who are under Roman oppression, who have the memory of their nation's struggles from one empire to another, right? The Babylonians and the Persians and the uh, the Romans and the Greeks and all of these different groups of people is good news that Jesus is proclaiming is that now that they're under Roman occupation, is there is another king besides Caesar. There's another king, and this king really rules the world. We're answering the question, what's the good news? For them, it's the oppression you're under is not the final word over your life. There is another king who rules the world, and this kingship is about to be established through Jesus' ministry. This is what he's getting at. And so when we say Jesus is Lord, what we're really saying is the true king who really runs the world has been established in Jesus. That's what it means when we say Jesus is Lord. What we're saying is God is the king. Jesus is Lord means God is the king. It means that any ruler or political power or emperor or despot or tyrant has an expiration date. We're in a political season right now in our country, and um, I thought about getting a bumper sticker that said, I don't know, 2016. (laughs) Because our political climate right now is kind of chaotic, and there are some kind of wacky characters, and there's a lot of fear behind who might run our country for the next four to eight years. But one of the good things, uh, one of the great things is that God is king and he's really running the show. And every ruler and leader that is exalted and put into power is just, is just a temporary power. Because God is really the one running the world because Jesus is Lord. There's another king besides Caesar. That's the good news. That's part of the good news. You remember in Daniel 2... When Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and it's this statue with the head of gold and the chest of arms and the the middle thighs of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay, which represented the kingdoms of Babylon and Persia, Greece and Rome, and then Rome's mingled power among Israel and the different nations. And then in Daniel 7, five chapters later, there's this vision of a stone that comes rolling down out of the mountain, and it crushes that statue. And this stone is not made with hands. It's not a man-made power. It's not a man-made kingdom. It's a stone, right? We immediately think of the stone that the builders rejected, right? And this stone comes barreling down and destroys these 
big, massive historical empires. I mean, if you know anything about like the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Persians, these were massive empires. In fact, one of the reasons why the Jews fell into idolatry is because they had a handle on true religious worship, but technologically they weren't very advanced. And so they're looking, if you're an Israelite, you know, 2,600 years ago, and you say, well, Yahweh is our God, and usually in those days, the, the strength and power and advancement of your nation was directly tied to the deity that you worshiped. So the Israelites are looking at Babylon and all these different kingdoms, and they're thinking, they're always tempted to jump ship from Yahweh worship because the Babylonians have all these technological advances, you know, the hanging gardens, and they've got irrigation systems and mighty armies. And so Jesus, when he stands up in the synagogue that day, he's proclaiming that this vision that Daniel saw of the stone that crushes these empires is here. The stone has arrived. The deliverer that crushes all other kingdoms. And so the poor in this context, when he says good news to the poor, it doesn't just mean economic status, but it relates to powerlessness. You know, you and I are pretty powerless to change things in our country. We have a vote, you know, and I think it's our civic duty to vote. But in the end, at the end of the day, we're poor. Yeah, you may have a decent paying job, but in the grand scheme of power and influence, you know, you and I are kind of nobodies. You know, most of us, most people are, are, are nobodies in that regard of power. We're not nobodies, but you know what I mean. So when Jesus is talking about good news to the poor, he's talking about this declaration that those without power, God sees. Those without influence, those without power, those without, uh, um, with, with, without connections, on a grand scheme, grand scale, God sees those people. And the good news is not just that Jews living under Roman occupation um, are going to be delivered. It's that the poor in spirit are about to experience a reversal of status. In a minute, we're going to talk about Jesus. As we read through the passage, Jesus said something about the acceptable year of the Lord. And we'll get to that in a minute. But essentially, Jesus is talking about, big picture here, a reversal of status for people. And the second thing he does besides proclaim good news is he proclaims liberty to the captives. You say, well, what does that mean? People who are chained up, people who are locked up, people who are prisoners. What does this phrase, liberty to the captives, mean? Well, the Greek word for liberty used here is aphasin, and it, it essentially, literally translated means release. The release of the captives, and it's where we get the word forgive from. So the idea of release is you're being released from debts and released from the obligation and penalty of your sins. Liberty to the captive means an act of freeing from an obligation, a releasing of debt. And you think about the Lord's Prayer, right? Jesus says, pray this way, forgive us our debts or release us from our debts. That's what the good news does. It proclaims a release from debts, 
forgiveness of sin. You know, nowadays we struggle with this concept of being, you know, um, captive to debt because we have, you know, you can file bankruptcy, right? If you charge your credit cards up and you, you know, you get in over your head, you can file bankruptcy. But in the old days, for centuries, there was debtor's prison. If you had debts you couldn't pay, you were essentially a debt slave. And many people literally sold themselves into slavery because they couldn't repay debts. And sometimes for some people who refused to address the issue, they were just thrown in prison, debtor's prison. And often in a debtor's prison, they had to work off the debt. So they were not free to come and go as they pleased. They were, they were put in a place for a while where they had to work off the debt. You can kind of think of like prison, you know, I mean, I don't know if they still do this, but, you know, prisoners in the penitentiary making license plates. And for us, this concept of debt and being released from debt doesn't have the power that it had for people in the first century. But this is what Jesus is getting at. His metaphor had a whole lot more punch for people in those days. See, sin is a debt we can't pay. And God's love is a debt we can't repay. And that's why we say we're saved by grace. Because getting out of the obligation of our sins, the debt we owe to God because we've offended him, and then when God forgives us, we owe this debt of gratitude that we can't repay either. That's why we say it's grace. In fact, the Bible says it's grace. We're saved by grace because something is happening in our lives that we couldn't do for ourselves. It's very simple, but it's powerful and it's profound. That's what it means to be saved by grace. It's a gift of grace. So the good news to the poor means not only release from sin's captivity, but it also means vision. Look at what he says. He says, to give sight to the blind. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives or release from their debts and sins and recovering of sight to the blind. Paul said that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The God of this world, people don't believe, essentially, because the God of this world has blinded their eyes, right? Uh, skeptics are nothing new. Uh, the free thinker society, <laughs> that existed centuries ago, okay? And <clears throat> how do I say this? Be gracious. Uh, in California, we had at, at uh, the college my oldest daughter went to, the Master's College, it was a Christian school, they invited the local Free Thinkers Society for a symposium. And so it was a very well-known Christian apologist who's written books on the subject, and three local, you know, um, renowned atheists. One of them was actually an actor. And they came, and there was a symposium, and it was actually kind of nice because they weren't you know, firing off on each other and insulting each other. They were discussing why believers believe and why unbelievers don't believe. And one of the things that became very clear is that believers and unbelievers see the world differently, right? When Jesus says, 
that he has come to give the recovery of sight to the blind, what he's saying is, I'm going to help you see the world the way you should see the world. Fundamentally, our difference with unbelievers is we have a different worldview. We have different lenses on. And they have lenses on. And they see the entire world through certain lenses. Now, in Scripture, that would be called spiritual blindness. They may have 20-20 vision, but according to the Word of God, they are spiritually blind. And so what the gospel does, what Jesus is proclaiming, is that he's going to give sight to the blind, that people can really see God. I think in the 80s or the 90s, there was a movie with Rowdy Roddy Piper. It was his, it was his debut at acting. And I don't, you, you remember the movie, they were like aliens, but they looked like normal people. And when he put these, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and when he put, I never saw the whole movie, but I've seen clips, and when he put the sunglasses on, he could see the aliens, you know, and, you know, he had these special glasses. Well, that's what, that's what happens when Jesus gets a hold of us. We have the ability to see the world the way God sees the world, not perfectly, not exactly the way God sees the world, but we start seeing things differently, We see people differently. We see ourselves differently. We have sight, and we have the kind of sight that only comes by faith. Faith brings with it its own vision, and it's not privy to those who don't have faith, but it is a real vision. It is a real sight. So if Jesus is going to, um, well, let me back up here. We've talked about vision. We've talked about sight. Satan's wealth consists in the souls of the lost, okay? It's a big concept. Satan's wealth consists in the souls of the lost. The establishment of Jesus's lordship, which is what's happening in this passage, means he's plundering the devil's kingdom. He's about to divest Satan's empire of its riches. This is, this is what's happening. Remember in another place in Mark when Jesus said, and before you can go in and plunder a man's house, you first have to bind the strong man of the house. You've got to tie up the guy who runs the place before you can take all of his stuff. Jesus is declaring he's doing that. His ministry is about to plunder Satan's house because Satan's got this, he's the god of this world. He's got a handle, you know, he's got the a control of the market of souls, if you will. And Jesus is about to reverse that status. He's about to change all of that. And for Jesus to do that, he has to remove blindness. John 9, 39, Jesus says, For judgment, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. In other words, people who think they really see things the way the, the, way the world should be, they trust in themselves, they're puffed up with pride, they don't need God. God is saying, those people will, will cease to see. And the ones who haven't seen now will see, by faith, of course. And when Jesus gives power and sight to the blind, which is something he really does, right? Jesus went around actually giving sight to the blind. You know, some of you may say, well, why doesn't that still happen today? Well, on one hand, what Jesus is doing by giving people actual recovery of sight 
is a metaphor for what the, what the gospel will do to people's hearts and minds. But not only that, I believe that the reason that we've made it technological and medical advances in the world where people actually ha- are able to improve their vision is because of the gospel. It's more than a coincidence that the countries that have experienced those technological advances have technically been usually Christian countries. The gospel brings with it not just spiritual vision, but real vision also. In Jesus' day, he actually healed people of blindness. There's that song, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. When Jesus says, no man comes to the Father but by me, in another passage, he's saying, only through me can people really see God. Now, you may disagree with that, and that's fine. I just want to say you're disagreeing with Jesus. We live in a place where people, we have a, a marketplace of ideas. You're free to believe whatever you want, and we're not, and I don't say that in some insulting tone, as if to say, you know, what you believe is ridiculous, you can believe whatever you want. What we're saying is, it's true. And that's, that's the beauty of living here where we live, is you can believe in whatever you want. I can believe in Christ, you can believe Buddha is the way for eternal peace. But what Jesus is essentially saying is, vision to see God only comes through me. Now if you reject that, that's fine, but you have to know you're rejecting the words of Christ himself. And this is where the Jews stumbled, because for all of their religious heritage, they were blind leaders of the blind, Jesus said. They were so caught up in all of the rules concerning the law of Moses that they, they, actually, they actually prevented themselves from really seeing. But there was always a remnant according to the election, Romans 11 and 5. And then thirdly, Jesus frees from oppression, proclaiming good news to the poor, anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, and then fourth, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, when Jesus makes this statement, He's actually quoting from Psalm 146 and 7, which says, Who executes justice for the oppressed? Who gives food to the hungry? This is the Lord's anointed. The Lord sets prisoners free. Now, we know from the scriptures and from history that Jesus did not go around doing prison breaks, okay? You know, he, he wasn't leading a band of rebels, you know, ripping the doors off of prisons and setting those kind of captives free. So what is he talking about? Well, one of the things that Jesus did do is he went around casting out demons out of people. He went around uh, uh, exercising his power and authority over devils. In fact, Jesus really ran into people who had devils in them. One man, the maniac of Gadara, had a legion of devils, right? They recognize him. They say, you know, son of man, have you come to torment us before our time? And Jesus says, be quiet. He doesn't want anyone to know who he is. Ironically, the devils know who he is, 
And his own neighbors who have known him his whole life don't. <laughs> Satan has got, you know, good theology. He knows, the devils know who Jesus is. There's no confusion about Jesus' identity. You know, son of God, if you come to torment us, and he says, what is your name? And they say, legion, for we are many. Jesus went around liberating people who were oppressed by the devil. You know, you can set people free, and that's a good thing, right? We're not advocating oppression. But unless people are set free from the oppression of Satan, they're always, they're always oppressed. Think of people with power and people with money who are, you know, um, miserable. They you know, drink themselves to death. They drug themselves to death because all of the freedom and material wealth and access to all of the world's luxuries that they have, they're still oppressed by Satan. Jesus came to bring liberty to the oppressed. Now, it's important here that I make a note about how two versions of Christianity have understood these passages. Because there's a lot of talk about the poor, the captives, the oppressed. And so, in the last couple hundred years, or at least the last hundred or so years, there's been this division among different groups of people who profess Christianity. One version sees this as simply being a program for social reform, right? Well, Jesus gives us, you know, he's advocating economic reforms, prison reforms, medical reforms, social justice reforms. In fact, some, from this point of view, you know, regret that Jesus even had to die at all. It was like, you know, he was really on to something with his program for social reforms. It's too bad it was cut short. Another version of Christianity says, no, no, no. These are all metaphors for the gospel's power to relieve spiritual poverty, spiritual captivity, spiritual blindness, and spiritual oppression. Um, but emphasizing one side or the other only is really a lopsided view of the gospel. So we don't want to completely affirm or deny either side. What we want to say is that Jesus is declaring... That spiritual deliverance and seeking justice for oppressed people belong together. Now some said, well, Jesus said the poor you have with you always. Well, that's true. But it doesn't mean we ought not to seek relieving the oppression of those who are poor by in, through injustice. Some people are poor because they're lazy. We know that. But other people are poor because of injustice, lack of opportunity, things like that. And Jesus is essentially saying that liberty from spiritual darkness, deliverance from spiritual oppression, ought to also be mindful of real physical oppression. You know, because we've had it so good for so long in the Western world, um, the church has kind of lost its prophetic voice. Now that's starting to come back as Christians more and more pay a price for being Christians. We were having a discussion yesterday with my wife and my kids, and we were driving around town, and I somehow, somehow the topic of persecution came up. And I said, in the Western world, in America, it has really cost us nothing to be Christians. But right? if you're a Christian in Yemen or Saudi Arabia or Pakistan, 
you're probably a genuine, authentic believer because it costs you something. You're risking your life by professing Christ. You wouldn't profess Jesus because it's convenient for you, because you could really die. Here, it's been different for a long time, but that's changing. In fact, I can see a time where God himself is, it's already begun. He's weeding out the wheat from the tares. And once again, it's going to cost you something to say you're a Christian. That's not a bad thing. But in the process, and as, as we see our culture changing so quick, I mean, man, it's changing quick. It's not the last 20 years. It's the last year. You know, we say, oh, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago. No, no, no. I mean, five months ago. And in another six months, we're going to go, man, look at how radically our culture morally has changed. And, and, you know, just don't be surprised. You know, people say, oh, it's a slippery slope argument. I find that slippery slope arguments are usually pretty spot on. <laughs> we don't know where our nation is headed, but we do know that Christ is Lord. That he's really running things, and in the end, we may be as a church as a people, better for it. So Jesus heals the sick. He's casting out demons. He forgave sins, and he's teaching an ethical system that promotes social justice. So it's not all of one, and it's not all of the other. Right? It's not all spiritual. It's all pie in the sky. It has no net impact on how we treat each other and how we view our culture. And it's not all social gospel, you know, just give people clean water in third world countries and that's all you have to do. It's both. Both of those things need to be tied together. The gospel cares about the whole person because God has made us whole people. We're not just, these, these bodies are not just shells, right? I mean, in some sense, you are your body, you know? It's, it's you know, forget the struggles in this world, just hold on to one day you're going to go to heaven. That's good, but you know, Matthew, read Matthew 25. You know, Jesus says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you came to see about me. I said, well, when did we do these things? And he said, well, as much as you've done it to, to these who have experienced those trials, you've done it to me. And on the flip side, he says, and as much as you have not done it, to those in need, you didn't do it to me. In fact, Jesus connects entrance into the kingdom or a kingdom ethic with those types of behaviors. Right? Come, you blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And then finally, he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's another word for jubilee. And to sum all of these ideas up, here's what's happening. How many of you have heard of the year of jubilee? You've heard of it. Every 50 years in Israel, at the end of seven sabbatical cycles, so every seven years you let the land and the crops and the fields rest. But every seven sevens, 49 or 50 years roughly, It was called the year of Jubilee, and in the year of Jubilee, uh, debts were released. People who were slaves were set free. In the year of Jubilee, uh, 
land, if you were a landowner and you had to, you know, sell off your land because to, to take care of debts, at the end of Jubilee, that land came back to your family. Now, you may, have not, may or may not have been alive, but it came back to your family. And all debts were canceled. Captives and slaves went free. The year of Jubilee was a time of renewed you know, excitement about the teaching of the law of God. And the year of Jubilee was inaugurated on the Day of Atonement. I hope you're making the connection here. Jesus is declaring this final, ultimate, everlasting jubilee. He's declaring that through his ministry and the annunciation of his message, a permanent year of jubilee is being ushered in. A call to joy and liberation and the beginning of doing justice and loving mercy. The jubilee that Jesus is talking about, this acceptable year of the Lord, means the kingdom of God has arrived. Now, some of you might think, kingdom of God, where? This is the kingdom of God? It's more than just what you see with your eyes. He is declaring that there is a new way of doing things. It really is a new world order. The kingdom of God has arrived. He connects the idea of the suffering servant and he declares this statement. He says, this scripture today has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what are the aims of Jesus? What were the aims of Jesus? By announcing the year of the Lord's favor, Jesus' intentions are this. To inaugurate the kingdom of God, a permanent jubilee. To reveal the true essence of the law through his teaching and ethical instruction. And to proclaim ultimate deliverance and salvation from bondage through his miracles and death. These are present realities. This is what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God and receive and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means that how we understand world power has changed. How we understand ourselves in this world and who controls our life, sin and righteousness, that has also changed. It means that God is running the show. And it means that his agent of redemption, Jesus, is Lord. Let's pray. Father, these are big ideas. But um, we pray that you would help our minds to simplify these.